You're listening to The Taylor Marshall Show, a special series on the book of Revelation from the Catholic point of view called The Catholic Apocalypse. And we've gone through the first 12 chapters. Today we look at chapter 13, The Land Beast and the Sea Beast, and The Mark of the Beast, 666, all that coming up in this episode. Howdy, and thank you for tuning in to The Taylor Marshall Show. This is the podcast for everyone who wants to create daily habits and learn enough theology to take their faith to the next level. We continue to do that with the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, one of the most confusing books of the Bible, but we're making sense of it together as we go line by line. Today, we look at chapter 13. Well, welcome back. This is the episode that everyone's been waiting for, where we talk about 666 and the mark of the beast and the sea beast and the land beast as they form a diabolical trinity with the dragon that we saw in the previous chapter. Lots of exciting uh, elements in this week's chapter. And I'm kind of excited about it because this Book of Revelation series really started from a blog post that I wrote a while back on the identity of the Whore of Babylon and the beast in the book of Revelation. And that was extremely popular. And then I realized, well, maybe people would like a podcast on this. So back in March of this year, I did an episode called What is 666 and the Mark of the Beast? And the reason I did it, it was episode 66. So if you want to go back and listen to it, it's episode 66 of the Taylor Marshall Show. I said, well, episode 66, I should do something on 666. So I did this one on the Mark of the Beast And it was extremely popular. I think it might still be the most downloaded podcast of the Taylor Marshall Show. We've had well over half a million downloads. And that one, even though it's a newer one, continues to get steady downloads. And so I asked you, the listener, I said, would you guys like it if I just did the whole book of Revelation instead of just doing one little tiny section? What if we did the whole thing? And the response was overwhelming. And everyone's like, yes, 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 please do the entire book of Revelation, and I was, I'm excited to do it. At first, when Shell voted and I realized, oh my goodness, I have to do the entire book of Revelation. This is going to be a lot of work, but I've really been enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. I've been reading your feedback over at iTunes, and I'm really inspired. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and read one. I've got them open here. Um, this one really got me pumped up before today's show as I was preparing my notes. This is from Brank Foster, and it reads like, I'm sorry, not Brank Foster, Brian K. Foster. Sorry, Brian. Brian K. Foster. And Brian writes, I recently listened to Taylor's show covering the book of Revelation. Very informative. As a pre-confirmation teacher at my parish, it's critical that I can answer the many questions that my students ask. I know I'll be ready for those curveball questions. Highly recommend this to all people of faith, end quote. So, Brian, thanks so much for, for listening. Thanks for supporting and leaving a review there. And hey, thanks for being a pre-confirmation teacher at your parish. That's awesome. Um, also, I want to read a review here from uh, Fighting Illy. I hope I'm saying this right. Fighting Illy, N-I-G. It looks like a foreign name. Maybe I've just totally garbled it like I did Brian's. But uh, she writes, Dr. Marshall does a great job applying the spiritual to everyday life. Very insightful, especially with the proverb of the week. I always look forward to the podcast each week. The latest episode on Revelation 12 was super insightful and helpful in understanding more on Mary from a scriptural aspect. We will definitely be using this. So thanks again. And if you'd like to leave a review or comment, 
just go over to iTunes and search Taylor Marshall Catholic Show. Click on the show there in the iTunes store. It's free. You can subscribe to it, but you'll click on the reviews there. There's already 377, uh, it looks like 374 five-star ratings. So thank you for all that have left those. And you can leave a comment. I read them every single week. There are several more um, comments as well, and, and I'll give a shout-out to all of you that left comments at the end of today's show. Hopefully, I don't forget. Well, let's look at the book of Revelation, chapter 13. As usual, we'll go through it line by line, and we'll describe the symbolism from the point of view of the Old Testament. Remember, this this book was written to early Christians, many of which were Jewish, and so the apocalyptic themes are taken from primarily the Old Testament, as we've seen before in previous episodes, from the Pentateuch, the Torah of Moses, uh, from the history of the Jewish people, the Israelites rather, and also especially from the prophets, even the minor prophets. And we've been paying special attention to the prophetic illusions that are in the apocalypse that are found in books like Daniel and Isaiah and others. So let's remember that we can't really understand this unless we're deep in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Now, as a reminder, or for those that are just joining us in this episode, last week we covered Revelation 12. And in Revelation 12, we saw that there was a woman clothed in the sun, and this was linked to the vision in chapter 11 of the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, and we see that this woman fills in or fulfills the symbol or the type of the Ark of the Covenant. She contains not just the law of God on stone, she contains the law or the Word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ, and so we see that she is the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Immaculate Conception, but more than that, she's also the Old Testament people ancient Israel, faithful Israel, and she is also the church. We know this because she has 12 stars on her head. Those 12 stars signify the 12 tribes of Israel, also the 12 apostles. She's the queen of the apostles. We also saw that she was in battle with a dragon, and the dragon had seven heads and 10 crowns. We're going to see that same image once again with our first beast here in Revelation. And this dragon makes war with the woman and tries to eat and consume her child. Her child, of course, is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but he is uh, lifted up. He ascends into heaven. And then the dragon makes war on the woman, but she's preserved by God, and upon those who are her children. And the book of Revelation tells us that her children are those who try to keep the teachings of God and are witnesses of Jesus Christ. And we closed last week talking about how important it is for us to be witnesses and to bear testimony to Jesus Christ, and how even in our own age, in this decade, in this century, in this millennium, we can make profound changes for the gospel. We can make an eternal impact in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, our family, but also in our culture. And I think a lot of us are feeling discouraged about our culture and how we're becoming a post-Christian culture Well, the book of Revelation is what we need because it gives us hope and it shows us that it's by testimony, by faithfulness, by deeds, and even by martyrdom that the kingdom of God takes root here on earth. Now, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. We read here, quote, And I was stationed on the sand of the sea. 
And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So this is taking us back out of heaven. In in chapter 12, we saw this vision in heaven. Now we're back standing on the sand of the sea, and we see a beast coming out of the sea. So this is the sea beast. And in Jewish literature, as we've talked about in previous episodes, the sea signifies the peoples of the earth, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And those of the land are those of the promised land. These are the people who are rooted and built on a rock. This is ancient Israel. Now, just for a little bit of of proof and backup on this, you can think back to the book of Genesis, where there's the waters of chaos. And of course, God creates the waters, but the waters signify something that is dark, mysterious. You can drown in it. Remember, most people in the old days couldn't swim. Even sailors couldn't necessarily swim. If you were overboard, you died. And the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters in the book of Revelation to bring about order to the cosmos. So the the waters, the seas, signify something that is wild and needs the presence of God in order to have the order, in order to have law, in order to have blessing. The land emerges, and the land is where we see the beasts, and ultimately we see humans take up their dwelling. And so in prophetic literature, we see that the nations are untamed, they are idolaters, they worship the demons, and they need the presence of the Holy Spirit, they need God's presence to bring them into a loving relationship with God. On the other hand, there are the people of the land, that is the Israelites, and they've been given the law through Moses, they've been given the commandments, they've entered into a covenantal relationship with God, and therefore they, unlike any other nation on earth, have been promised a land. They've been given security. So that's a bit of Old Testament background that's going to help us understand these two beasts, because we have a beast from the sea and a beast from the land, and we're going to see that one beast signifies the kingdom of paganism, that is the Roman kingdom, derived from the book of Daniel and those prophecies. And then the other beast from the land is apostate Jewish beast. This is the people of Israel led by the high priest who have rejected their Messiah. You'll remember when Jesus Christ stood before the high priest, the high priest tore his sacred priestly garments, his vestments, and said, in the presence of Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, King of the Jews, the high priest, who represents the people of Israel, said, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And by doing that, by ripping his vestments, which, by the way, Moses prohibited priests to do, and by saying to the face of Jesus Christ, God is not our king. You, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, anointed king, are not our king. Our king is Caesar. Our king is the king of the pagan Roman Empire that persecutes us, that spreads idolatry and bloodshed throughout the world. That is who we serve. That is our Lord. That is our Messiah. And by doing that, By rejecting Christ and ordering his crucifixion and really making a formal covenantal allegiance with Caesar in that moment, 
they also became a beast, a beast of the land. And as we continue to study, we're going to see that the whore of Babylon signifies this apostate city, Jerusalem, which has rejected her spouse, has rejected her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this over and over again in the book of Revelation, this condemnation on Jerusalem, which is going to culminate in the year A.D. 70, when the Romans come and sack the city, kill everyone, and burn the temple to the ground, as Jesus Christ prophesied in Matthew 24. Okay, so that gives us verse 1. Let's go to verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power in his throne and his great authority. So here we see that the dragon is the one that is giving authority to this beast. And we're going to see the second beast come up in just a few verses here. This is the unholy trinity. This is the demonic trinity. You have the dragon, who is Satan himself. And then you have the sea beast. And then you have the land beast. And these three mimic and mock the holy trinity. Okay, And as we move along here, you'll see exactly how this falls out. Now, this beast coming up of the sea, as I said, he has seven heads and ten horns. And these seven heads, as I mentioned in last episode... Uh, are just like the ones that the dragon has that attacks the woman, who attacks the mother of the Christ. The seven heads come from, of course, Daniel. In Daniel, we read that the we read about four beasts, and the first beast has one head, the second beast has one head, the third beast has four heads, and the fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire, has one head as well. And if you add that up, one, one, four, and one, that's seven. Three plus seven, or sorry, three plus four is seven. That's why we have seven heads here. Also, there are 10 crowns, and we'll, we'll see that these represent 10 principalities in the Roman Empire. They also relate to the 10 toes that are described in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel uh, 2 and then Daniel 7. And there, we've already covered this, but for those joining us, I'll just repeat it once again because it's worth mentioning. You've got to know this if you're going to study the book of Revelation. Daniel describes a succession both in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 of four kingdoms. In one vision, he describes an idol with four kinds of metal. In another vision, he describes four different kinds of beasts. And the four beasts signify, first of all, the first one is Babylon. Second one is the empire of the Medes and the Persians. The third one is the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And the fourth one is the Roman Empire. And these four pagan empires are the four kingdoms, four Gentile peoples who ruled over the Jewish people. You'll remember that the Babylonians first took the Judeans um, into captivity, and then they were overcome by the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. And then the Greeks came. That's the time period of the Maccabees. You might remember that. And then after the Maccabees, there was a time of, of independence. And then the Romans, who had been allies to the Jews, turned on them and dominated them. That's why the, the New Testament begins with Romans ruling over Judea. They're taxing them. They have tax collectors, and Pontius Pilate is there running the show. If you want to know more about that, by the way, I have a whole book called The Eternal City, Rome and the Origins of Catholic Christianity. It explains all of this political and theological and historical information and shows how it ultimately leads to the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Church as centered in 
Rome. And yes, of course, we have Eastern churches, Eastern Catholic churches, but all of them see the Pope as the vicar of Christ and as the hub of unity and as infallible in faith and morals whenever he speaks ex cathedra. So our beast has seven heads, and, and that's the reason why. And we know that we are in the fourth kingdom here, and so it's that Roman beast. So this beast is the Roman Empire. And we see more evidence for that in the next verse. So in verse 3, it reads, And I saw one of his heads as it had been smitten to death, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole land wondered after the beast. So this is a reference to a head wound. And some people think that this refers to the Nero come back to life myth. There's a myth early on that Nero, who we're going to talk much more about in this episode, um, killed himself or was killed by another and that he would resurrect and be a pagan resurrected king, an antichrist figure. And I think that that is not an original idea. I think that probably came from the book of Revelation, but I don't think that's what's being talked about here. We need to look at this from the context of the Old Testament. What do we know in the Old Testament about a head being struck? Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, God puts enmity between the woman and between the serpent. And he says that the woman's child will strike or crush the head of the serpent, right? And that this will be the messianic victory over evil, over the devil. So here we see that has happened. We see that the head has been wounded, but it seems to have healed. And therefore, the whole land wondered after the beast. This means that the people of Israel began to wonder or have admiration for the beast. So what's going on here? Well, remember, Christ, through his death on the cross and by his resurrection and by him sending Peter and Paul to Rome to recover the pagan kingdoms and bring them and reconcile them back to God, he has destroyed the powers of devil of the devil. He has destroyed the Gentile kingdoms. However, it hasn't yet fully played out. And so the people of Israel, the Gentiles, look at this, they say, well, yeah, I mean, apparently or allegedly your Messiah rose from the dead, but it really didn't hurt the Roman kingdom. I mean, it really didn't hurt the Jews. It really didn't do anything. You know, Christ said that, you know, the temple would be destroyed and all that, but look around. Everything seems to be working out okay. And that's what's being referred to here. The Roman kingdom has received its death blow. It just doesn't know it yet. It seems to have been healed. And then in verse 4, and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war against him? And then the next verse, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Okay, so there's a lot right here. The beast is given a mouth uttering haughty 
in blasphemous words. So the Roman Empire is uttering blasphemy. Now, what is that blasphemy? Well, in this time period, in the first century, the Roman emperors are claiming divine status. They want to be called in Greek, kurios, which means Lord, Master. They want to call themselves divine, so we see the appellation divus. Some of them even call themselves deus or theos in Greek. These are all words depicting God himself, the divine. And so Christ was God, and he became man for our salvation. He was fully God and fully man. But these Roman emperors are just men, and yet they elevate themselves to be gods. They want to be worshipped. Even the name Augustus has a divine element to it, or in Greek, sabastos, which means, you know, one who should be adored. So this is a big problem, both for Christians and for Jews, especially for Christians, because they are following their messianic king in this period, even unto death. And what's interesting here is that this beast utters his blasphemies for 42 months. Now, we talked about this in the last episode. 42 months is three and a half years. Three and a half years is half of a seven years. This refers to the 70 weeks prophecy, a period of 490 years from the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the baptism and then death of Jesus Christ. Again, all of that is outlined, if you want more on that, in my book, The Eternal City. But the 42 months is is interesting for two reasons. First of all, it's a three and a half period of tribulation, half of a seven, a broken seven, seven's a holy number. But 42 months, we know historically, is the exact length of the persecution of Nero against the Christians in Rome. It was exactly 42 months. We know this because Nero's persecution began in November of the year 64, and went all the way till June of the year 68. So this is a period of 42 months, or three and a half years. Also, it says here that he uttered blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So the Roman Empire here is not only attacking God, but attacking the saints, attacking those who will, who, who will become and did become martyrs, there between 64 and 68, including our first pope, St. Peter, and including the great apostle to the Gentiles, St. Paul himself. Speaking of the saints and the martyrs and St. Peter and St. Paul, we have this really beautiful image here of a book of life. It's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, so that, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. And the names are written in this book of life. The idea here is that there's a scroll with your name written on it before the foundation of the world. And this corresponds to the Roman taxation. You remember at the beginning, you know, Mary and Joseph go to be taxed by Augustus, by the Caesar. Well, here, God has taken his own census of his saints, and he's enrolled them in a scroll. And there they're safe and they're secure. So, again, this relates to, you know, things we find in the book of Romans, like chapters 8, 9, and 10, where he talks about predestination. And we Catholics do believe in a form of predestination. There's a lot of debate over it over the centuries. You know, there's Molinism. There's kind of a more strict view that Thomas Aquinas, and even more strict, that St. Augustine applies. And we cover all of that in the new St. Thomas Institute. We do a whole video lesson 
on the Catholic Church, how we can understand properly this idea of predestination without, you know, of course, destroying free will and without destroying, of course, the freedom of God, and also how faith and works applies to all of that. So if you're interested in that, if you're a member of the New St. Thomas Institute, go check out that lesson. It's called Catholic View on Predestination. And if you're not a member, go ahead and join. Check it out. And uh, I'm sure you'll learn a lot and get lots of resources as it relates to this idea that the names of the saints are recorded in the heart of God or in the scroll of God, as we see here. Verse 9, if anyone has ear, let him hear. This is, of course, classic Old Testament prophet language. Christ himself uses it. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone slays with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is a challenge saying, look, people will go into captivity. They will be imprisoned. We know St. Paul was in prison several times, both in Israel and in Rome. We know that St. Peter was in prison. In fact, you can go to Rome. I was just there recently. You can go to the church, St. Peter in chains, and you can see the chains that Peter was bound in. And of course, we know that those two apostles, those two saints were also martyred. So Christians... Catholics who follow Christ, who take up their cross, some of us are asked to go into prison for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Some of us are called to shed our blood, and that scares me, and it probably scares you as well, but we don't need to be afraid because Christ, if we're called to do that, will give us the graces needed in that hour. We don't need those graces right now, unless you're in a situation, you're listening to this and you are imprisoned or you are facing martyrdom, which does happen in our day, of course. But he will give us those graces in that moment. We need to pray for those graces. That's why we pray in the Hail Mary now and at the hour of our death, that we will receive, we pray to receive special graces in the moment of death. And this is why the book of Revelation says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. We are, as St. Paul says, running a race We are running a marathon. And the energy, the calories, the strength that we have to endure is grace. We can only get to heaven by grace. We can't work our way to heaven. Rather, we have to have grace so that we can do works. Grace is the fuel. Grace is the divine life of God in our soul. How do we get grace as Catholics? Well, primarily we get grace through the means God has established called Sacraments, there are seven sacraments. Baptism initiates us in the life of grace through faith. And then in the sacramental life, we can grow in grace through prayer, through good works. As St. James says, that works perfect our faith. So we can grow in faith, we can grow in grace through works, through reading scripture, through helping other people, by using our resources, our time, and our money to extend the kingdom of God All of these are ways that we grow in grace so that we can endure all the challenges we have in life. And God always gives us the graces that we need if we correspond and respond to his love. If we turn away through venial sins, if we wreck our faith through mortal sins, and we basically just say to God, I don't love you anymore. I want to choose my own path. You know, mortal sin is really just like giving the bird to God and saying, I'm going to go my own way. I don't want to follow the path of grace in love. And so when that happens, we lose all grace, which is horrible. We can get that grace back again through confession and through prayer and through penance. 
but grace is what gives us the endurance. And we see this running as a thread throughout the book of Revelation. The saints are equipped with the love of God. And the image often used here is that they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That is, they have entered into, they are participating in the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 is where we see the second beast, the land beast. Verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast, which rose out of the earth, or in Greek, rose out of the earth, of the land. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority on of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth, or we should say here, and makes the land and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. And by the signs which it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, bidding them make an image for the beast, which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was also allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast should even speak and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And we'll pause right there. So here we have this first beast. It's notable that the beast has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. So this is a false prophet. The image comes from Christ himself. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. So they look like sheep, but they inside are like wolves. Or here it says they speak like the dragon. So we have one that comes from the land. He comes from Israel. He is apparently, or looks like a lamb. He looks like one who's come on behalf of God. He looks like a messianic figure. But the voice is the voice of the devil. Now the land beast, it says, exercises all the authority of the sea beast, the land beast, and it stands before the sea beast. And this is a, the standing before is prophetic language. It's from the Old Testament. Prophets, saints, these holy figures in the Old Testament perform their ministry and perform their prophetic tasks in the presence of God. And it shows them almost like in the courtroom of God, and they are speaking or testifying on behalf of God to his people. And here it's all flipped around. We have the second beast, the land beast, and he is ministering or prophesying in the presence of the sea beast. And what we have here is we have apostate Israel, apostate Judaism, and they are prophesying in the presence or in testimony towards the Roman Empire. Again, this is exactly what happened when the high priest, standing before Jesus Christ, the true God, he says, and he basically he prophesies falsely, we have no king but Caesar. That is what is happening here. We have one who is supposed to represent God's will and God's law and God's people, the high priest, and instead of defending God's prerogatives, he is defending the prerogatives of Caesar, pagan, Roman, imperial power. Roman emperors who want to be worshipped as if they were Yahweh, as if they were the God of all the nations. Now, it also says here that he was allowed to make a idol 
an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So we have the dragon, we have the sea beast, we have the land beast, and now we have an idol or an image of the beast. What's this all about? Well, if we compare it to what we know to be true about God's kingdom, God's rule, what's true about the Christian, the Catholic church in the first century, as it's true today, we see the same four levels. First of all, at the top, like we saw the dragon, Satan himself, that corresponds in God's authentic kingdom as God the Father. And then we see that God has raised up a messianic ruler, a king of all the nations, a king who rules over all the waters of the people, and that is the Son. He is the image of the Father. He is the icon of the Father. And then you have this the land beast, and he signifies the spirit of the devils speaking through the false priests of Israel, namely the high priest, the Sanhedrin, all those who condemned Christ. And then as we see in the book of Acts, they persecute Stephen, and then they persecute James the Greater, and then they arrest St. Peter, and then they chase out all the apostles. We see an active conspiracy there in the first century in Jerusalem to drive out the true priest. And that is, in here, in, in Revelation, that is the second beast, the land beast, who looks like a lamb. He looks like he's a holy holy guy. The priests look like they're holy and they're doing God's will and they're reading and they're praying and doing all this stuff, but in reality, they're persecuting Christ and persecuting the kingdom, just as Jesus said to Paul when he was persecuting Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because when Saul is persecuting Christians, he's persecuting the body of Christ. He's persecuting Christ himself. And then the fourth level is we have this idol. It's kind of inanimate, but it's given a spirit. It's given the ability to breathe and speak on behalf of that beast. And this, if we correspond it to the authentic, true, covenantal Christian reality, is the demonic version of the church. Um, The son, through his true priests, his presbyters, the apostles, establishes an image of himself, a likeness of himself, his own body, that is the church. Likewise, the false prophet, that is the high priest, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, they establish throughout the world their own false church, their anti-church, We've seen this already in the book of Revelation, the opening chapters, the, quote, synagogue of Satan. These are the synagogues that have gone out throughout all the world, and many of them, members of these synagogues, have converted, and they've become priests, presbyters, and bishops, and lay people like Lydia. You read about all over in the book of Acts. But some of them in the synagogue do not accept Christ, and they begin to persecute the church. So this idol is an image of what's going on in Jerusalem. It's an exact facsimile copy of what went on in Jerusalem. Now the synagogues are working in league with the Romans to hand over the Christians. And this is exactly what happened in the first century. By the way, if you read Acts, you will see all over the place that the Jewish synagogue leaders— The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, but also the synagogue leaders throughout the empire are instigating persecutions against Christians and handing them over to the civil authorities. It's everywhere. You know, you look at Acts 4, 
Then you look at Acts 6, Acts 7, Acts 9, Acts 14, Acts 17, Acts 18, 20, uh, chapters 22, 23, 24, Acts 28, even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you see that there is this unholy alliance between the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders in synagogues and the persecution of the Romans. Why? Because this is exactly how it went down for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ. The Jewish people said, the Jewish apostates, I should say, not all the Jewish people, because remember, Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary, was Jewish, and she was faithful, as, as faithful could be. She's a Immaculate Conception. Peter was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. Andrew was Jewish. Stephen was Jewish. All the early apostles, Our Lady, all the early martyrs, all the early presbyters, all the early bishops were all Jewish. So here in this context, we're referring to the apostate Jews who are following not Jesus, the Messiah and King and the high priest. They're following the false high priest there in Jerusalem, the one who has rejected the Messiah. And we see that same pattern of the apostate Jews, like the high priest, working with the pagan Gentiles, like Pontius Pilate, and bringing together a legal conspiracy to not only kill Christ, but to kill his followers. And that's what these images here are of the dragon, the sea beast, the land beast, and then the image of the beast. These correspond with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working through his priest, his presbyters, and then finally the one true church that's extending, that is the reflection or image of Christ in the world in his believers. We now get to turn to 666. I know you've been waiting for it. Here it is. It's in the last, what is it, three verses of this chapter, chapter 13, then we'll be done. But it goes on in chapter 16. It says, It causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. It is the number 666. Now in the Greek, we have here three letters, Chi, Xi, and Sigma, or if you were in a fraternity, Chi, Xi, and Sigma. And many, many people, and I've already talked about it in the other podcasts, have identified this with the emperor Nero Caesar. In the old days, you could take letters. Each letter had a numeric value. And so you could take your name and you could add up all the letters in your name and it would give you a numerical value. Well, if we take in Hebrew the name Nero Caesar and we add up each of the numerical values for each of those letters, we get, surprise, six, six, Six. It's the code for Caesar. But there's more to 6-6 than just Nero Caesar. I think ultimately that's the best way to understand it. But if we go back and look at these Greek letters of Chi, Xi, and, and Sigma, if we actually say that word, it goes like this. And that's the sound of a hissing snake. So it reminds us of the dragon. It reminds us of the serpent from Genesis who led us all into sin, who deceived the woman and deceived the man and brought original sin into the world. So just the the pronunciation of it is x, x, which sounds like a snake. Also, 
the number 666. Six is one less than seven. Seven is a holy number. Uh, God created the world. Uh, it's established on a seven-day week period. And six is one less. In fact, God created man on the sixth day. So six is the number of man. It's not really the number of God. And so it falls short of that which is holy. So we have a triple falling short. Instead of having a holy, 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 we have an unholy six, an unholy six, and an unholy six. The number six is also associated with uh, Goliath, the ancient enemy of David. Goliath, by the way, stands for the devil. David stands for Christ. Um, And in Genesis chapter 3, it's prophesied that the Messiah, the son of Eve, the son of Mary, ultimately the new Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. And here, in the story of Goliath, it's David who by prayer and faithfulness crushes the head of Goliath. And Goliath stands six cubits tall. So this number six is associated with Goliath. Also, Goliath wears armor made of scales like a snake. And his armor, we are told, weighs, drumroll, 600 shekels of iron. You can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Also, King Nebuchadnezzar, a great enemy of the of the Jewish people in the in the captivity, he erects an image, an idol, that is 60 cubits high and six cubits across in Daniel 3. So here you can see that we have 666 once again. Over and over, this number six is associated with the enemies of God and with the enemies of the saints. If we flip it around, we see that the number 888 signifies Jesus Christ and the friends of Christ, the saints of Christ. So if you take the name Jesus and you add it up, the number you get in Greek is 888 or 888. Why is this important? Because for the apostles and for the early Christians and for Catholics today, the number eight signifies the eternal Sabbath. It signifies the eighth day on which circumcision was was given, and all baptismal fonts traditionally have eight sides on them for that reason, because we Christians believe in the Mass, in the Eucharist, we lift up our hearts. We lift them up to the Lord, and when we do that, we actually escape time, and we enter into eternity. We enter into the eternal today of Jesus Christ. And so the mystics, the early church, have spoken of our worship as existing not on the seventh day, the Sabbath of the seventh day, but rather we enter into the eighth day, the eschatological reality of God's presence in heaven. And so that's why Jesus' name adds up to 888. It it supersedes the 777. It goes beyond the holiness of God, the holy seven, the holy seven, the holy seven. Now we're into a super holy eight, a super holy eight, a super holy eight. Not only that, but if you take the names of Daniel and his three friends, remember, you know, they were thrown into the fire and, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all those guys. If you take their names and add them up, you also get eight, eight, eight. So there's something going on here. The number eight, of course, signifies the resurrection. Christ died on a Friday the sixth day, that's the day that he died on again, and then he rises again on the eighth day. We see this symbolism being hinted at by St. Peter, our first pope, when he's talking about Noah and how there were eight people in the ark. And of course, the flood was a type of baptism, which is a type of resurrection 
salvation, entering into Christ. So lots going on here with the numbers. Christ, Jesus is 888. Nero Caesar, the enemy of Christ, is 666. Oh, and I forgot one more thing. Solomon, King Solomon, who was a wise man, but went apostate and brought paganism and idolatry into the Holy Land, just as the high priest did in the old days, he, in 1 Kings 10 and also 2 Chronicles 9, he received 666 talents of gold in one year. So the only other place in the Bible where we see the number 666 is in reference to King Solomon, who, in a way, he's a type of Christ because he's the son of David, but he's also a type of the Antichrist because he brings about idolatry into the Holy Land. So one more thing there on the 666. So let's close up here with some thoughts and some maybe some practical applications of Revelation 13. As I mentioned back in episode 66 of the Taylor Marshall Show, it's key to understand why the mark of the beast at the very end of this chapter is placed on the forehead and the right hand of the people of God. I really don't think this is a microchip. I think this is referring to a Jewish understanding of the law of God. If we go to Exodus chapter 13, but especially Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 11, we see there that God commands them to place the law of God upon their foreheads and upon their hands. This signifies total obedience to God. And this is one of the reasons why Jewish people to this day, and even in the time of Christ, they tie phylacteries upon their forehead. They have a little box, and they tie it around their head on their forehead. And inside that box, they put a, a script, a piece of paper with the law of God in it. And they tie one also onto their right hand. And they're doing this in fulfillment of this commandment in Deuteronomy. They're literally binding the law of God on their forehead and on their right hand. And Jews, of course, reading this apocalypse would have known exactly that this is a reference to Moses' teaching that the law of God should be placed in the forehead and on the right hand. Now, I don't really believe that God, and you can tell in the teaching of Christ, that was never really the intention to strap on Bible verses on your forehead and your hand. What does God mean by this? Well, he's telling us that we should place the law of God in our minds, in our forehead. It's not enough just to have it tied on to the to the outer skin of your forehead. He wants it implanted in your mind, that you think about God's law, that you obey God's law with your mind. And then we tie it onto our, or rather we place it into our hand. This symbolizes that we do the word of God. The right hand for the Jewish people, sorry left-handed people, but the right hand signifies the power and activity of a human person. Your right hand is how you earn your living. Your right hand is how you eat. Your right hand is how you do everything. And so by placing the law of God on your hand, God is saying actions, deeds, works. And so for Catholics, this is a great illustration, both in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and the book of Revelation, of faith and works. We Catholics believe, we Christians believe in faith and works. In our minds, we believe it, we trust it, but that's not enough. We have to place it in our hand, in our actions. So we see here in Revelation that the word of God should be in our minds and it should be in our actions, in our right hand, but the beast 
wants to substitute God's law with the law of Rome, with the law of paganism, with the law of injustice, the law of bloodshed, which brings martyrs to their graves. And this is what the beasts are enforcing upon the people. They're saying, look, you must take away the law of Moses. You must take away the law of Christ from your minds and from your actions, from your right hands. Don't offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Don't believe in his covenantal promises. Instead, offer sacrifice to Caesar. Use your mind to trust in political salvation. Caesar is the one who's going to put food on your table, not God. Caesar will protect you from the barbarians. Caesar is the one who will be your kurios, your Lord. And that's what's going on here at the end of Revelation chapter 13. We're seeing that Caesar is replacing God, not just amongst the Gentiles. We kind of knew that already. But he's even replacing God amongst the Jewish people. And this is what's ultimately going to lead to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple of the priests in the year A.D. 70. We're going to learn more about that. We're actually going to see it happen here in the book of Revelation in the chapters to come. Let's close up this week with an application, particularly about this idea of the mark of the beast. I want you to close your eyes, unless you're driving somewhere, don't close your eyes, or if you're flying an airplane, don't close your eyes, but imagine in your mind the entire world, and they're literally wearing on the outside of their forehead and their hand an identity badge. And there's only two identity badges issued to all the world's inhabitants. There are those who wear the identity badge of the beast, and there are those who wear the identity badge of Jesus Christ. And those who wear the identity badge of the beast, in their minds, they are just like those in the first century who are trusting in political salvation. Everything for them has to do with politics and what they will get and receive from the state. And then there are those who wear the identity badge of Jesus Christ. You can think of it as a cross on the forehead and a cross on the hand. By the way, we receive chrism on the forehead uh, in our confirmation, and priests receive the chrism of the cross on their hand when they're ordained priests. So this, of course, does relate to these this idea of special markings upon the head and upon the hand. But all those who follow Christ have this cross on their forehead and their hands, and they're always thinking about how God's going to provide for them, and they have faith. And, and of course, we as Catholics are citizens. We do vote. We are involved in the political process. I'm not by any means demeaning that. But ultimately, our hope, our faith, and our love is placed in a supernatural solution to all of man's troubles. We believe in Christ, and therefore we, we do open orphanages and schools and hospitals and all of that. The Catholic Church is the biggest provider in the entire world for social services in that arena. But ultimately, we raise our eyes not to the political arena, but we raise our eyes to the new covenant. And that new covenant is brought to us in the Eucharist, and it's introduced into our lives through baptism. And so it's a different way of seeing reality. We see reality not chiefly in a political way, but in a spiritual way. A spiritual way doesn't, of course, get rid of the politics. Again, like I said, Catholics, Christians have always been involved in the political arena. 
But again, that's not our anchor. That's not our root. And so ask yourself, how much of the time am I wearing the mark of the beast? And how much of the time am I wearing the mark of Christ? And then how can I live my entire life where my mind is always rooted in Christ? In my hand, my right hand, or if you're left-handed, I'll let you be at your left hand, my actions are working for Christ. Because ultimately, that's what you and I are going to be judged on. How did we believe and how did we act? Faith and works, justified by faith and works. James chapter 2, also in Galatians, same thing. Faith working through love. It's our faith in Christ and our actions that will determine where we end up forever. So don't wear the mark of the beast. If you've been wearing the mark of the beast, if your mind and your actions have been overcome with trust in the state or the political rulers of this age, cast that off, get rid of it, and instead put on the mark of Christ in your mind and the mark of Christ on your hand, in your actions, and you will be saved. Well, hey, thanks for listening this week. Revelation chapter 13, an exciting chapter Hope you learned a lot. I also want to encourage you to go back and listen to the other episodes. If you haven't listened to the first uh, several segments in this book of Revelation, start up at Revelation chapter 1 and work your way through it. I also want to give some shout-outs to everyone who's been so kind to leave uh, reviews over at iTunes. Again, if you want to leave a review at iTunes, please, it helps people find this podcast in the secular iTunes environment. If they're looking for Christian or Catholic podcast, by rating it, you actually bump it up in the algorithm. So over 377 of you have done that. I want to thank you so much. And I'll give a shout out again to Brian K. Foster, who I mentioned earlier in the show. Also Fighting Illy, who I mentioned earlier in the show. Roland Rolas, thank you for giving a five-star review. I really appreciate your kind words there. Also someone wrote in with the name God Hears Us. They left a five-star review. Uh, Thank you so much. And then also there was one here that really touched me by and Corey Jen, and I'm going to read it uh, because I really liked what Jen said. Jen writes, quote, What's more important than your everlasting soul? How much time do you spend on the temporary, the stuff that doesn't really matter? And I'm just going to interrupt here. Jen, thank you so much. I mean, you're basically saying what we wrapped up here in this episode is, is our mind and our hand in the temporary, or is it really in the inter- eternal? Jen goes on to say, drop the reruns and pick up a new healthy habit. Listen to Taylor Marshall. I just discovered him a couple months ago, and I'm eagerly catching up on the past podcasts, which are free, she says. And I've also signed up for the new St. Thomas Institute, which I'm very nearly done with, though he thankfully continues to add new content every week. I highly recommend joining. The monthly fee is very reasonable and help support the free podcast. Keep the content coming, Dr. Marshall. So, Jen, thanks so much. Uh, I wanted to read that one because next week, this coming Monday, we are opening spots for enrollment in the new St. Thomas Institute. There's a waiting list, again, of over 200 people who want to join. And I want to encourage you, if you like studying Catholic theology, if you're interested in biblical theology, if you're interested in apologetics, right now we are studying together in our new St. Thomas Institute Over 1,800 people are studying with us. We're studying how do you reach out to people who have left the Catholic Church, family, friends. And we're covering topics like what if people are scandalized by liturgy? What do you say? How do you talk to a priest about liturgical abuse? What do you say to people who say to talk about priestly sexual scandals? How do you handle that theologically and from history and with apologetics? 
So we're giving you not just the theology in the, in the doctrinal framework, in the tips, in the resources, but we're also giving you the practical ways to bring up these conversations in ways that are non-threatening, ways that are designed to help people come closer to Christ, come closer to the Eucharist, come closer to the Catholic Church. If you're excited about that, if you want to do that, please join the new St. Thomas Institute. There's limited spots. Again, there's over 200 people on the waiting list. Enrollment opens this Monday at 9 a.m. And I know we will run out of spots. So if you want to be part of it, please do check it out. Again, the tuition is extremely low. It's less than 2% of what a normal Catholic college would be. So price is really not an issue. It's really, do you want to learn and study and earn your certificates in Catholic theology, Catholic philosophy, Catholic apologetics? If so, check it out, newsaintthomas.com, newsaintthomas.com. Hey, it's been a pleasure being with you again this time. Thanks for listening. Look for next week's episode on Revelation chapter 14. And remember that our Lord Jesus Christ said that you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. was brought to you by the new St. Thomas Institute. Discover online Catholic classes and earn your certificate in Catholic theology at the new St. Thomas Institute. To register for online Catholic classes, please visit newsaintthomas.com. That's newsaintthomas.com.